Friday, 1353, GMT-8. Every cloud has a silver lining, but that also means that every silver lining requires a cloud. First class VTO can be restful. Coordinator leans back, trying to enjoy the plush seat and reviews what she knows. The collective has been targeted. Payment has been made with the clear expectation that the funds will never actually be drawn since the recipients are expected to be dead. Other collective members have been blitzed or gone to ground, targets lost. This is a first that Coordinator has no patience for. After all, there's an order to things. It's not as if a group of strangers just made up their minds that someone needed kidnapping and decided to do a little off-the-couch crime. There are rules of engagement. They're well known. The contract is binding. If no local is willing or able to pull a piece, if a percentage of a contractor's team is taken from the regional talent pool, if the one-off is not compromised during the actual commission of the contracted action, the agreement is fulfilled. Once appropriate considerations for local politics have been made, the subject is closed. That's book. That's the collective process, for God's sake. Outsourcing is the bread and butter of the business. Now some asshole has decided to adjust the ground rules without consulting the affected actors. She is steaming. Just not going to play. No way. Her mouth is set in a tight-lipped smile. It reflects her amusement at the irony of her situation, running, but still pretending you're in charge of things. It's not really funny. Would you care for anything to drink, miss? The steward politely offers a wine and beverage list. Just water, thanks, coordinator replies. Melatonin and some water will be plenty. Even on the short hop out of Vancouver's Chrétien International, the flight to Macau is still nearly six hours, and coordinator isn't flying first cabin for the food. Her interest is in the bed. She thanks the steward for the water, swallows her melatonin, and snaps the do-not-disturb sign-on. It annoys her to think that an eager staffer might wake her just to see if she wants something. With her eyes closed, she replays the last steps of her walk-off from Portland. This is really just to make sure that she isn't missing any detail that could get her killed later. Cab to ferry, four bookings, different names, two of them men. Off at each island, back on as a different person, into the associated Anglo-French-Canadian independent territories, half-hour stop at the Vancouver Hilton for a change of prints, clothes, hair color, and a comfortable location to place retinal overlays. Checklist complete. Coordinator allows herself to relax into a state of wonder. Here, the real questions precipitate out. Why would anybody want to eliminate outsourcers? Could benefit from the elimination of the target himself. How did these people find out who we are? Unfortunately, it seems to be an expanding list. Macau, she reassures herself. Only time is necessary for the answers to her questions to hatch. This whole mess, I'll sort it out with house. Once I'm plugged in, I'll have the assets to get this right. With the comforting anchor of a promised solution embedded in her consciousness, Coordinator settles into a dreamless, uneasy sleep as the airship leaps into the troposphere and loops out over the Pacific on a heading for China. Friday, 1535, GMT-8 A light wind makes its afternoon appearance along the Japanese current. Whitecaps whip up and the swell kicks spray on Answer's cover tarp. It's time. The rust-colored line is closing on the center. He flips the oilcloth aside, rises, and moves below decks. Spray settles on his shoulders as he steps down to give the engine a once-over. Not new, but well-maintained. He checked six different boats at the docks before deciding on this one. The only thing he took from the others was a jar of peanut butter, three bags of bagels, and a two-liter water bottle. He squints at the horizon and sees the faint rise of a ship several kilometers to the west. Time to go. 
Answer cranks the motor over and sets a course he believes will allow him to cross the larger vessel's path. He sets the helm, and he waits. In 40 minutes, he's nearly at the ship, a long, low supertanker registered in Panama. It is heading downwind as he slides into its wake. It breaks the waves for him as he latches onto its heels and maneuvers into position. Anything really useful, he now slips into his pack. The weather is blowing up. A frigid, sleet-sharp wind of twenty knots complicates the work Answer will be called on to perform. Liminal night sets its hem on the horizon, and for once Answer is glad for winter's brief days. The crushing noise of massive diesel engines and the thrashing beat of enormous propellers eclipse all natural sounds as Answer swings the small craft into the lee of the tanker's stern. Turbines shriek as relentless waves slam into the stout hull planks. He roughhouses the wildly jouncing boat to within six meters of the tanker's hull. Answer estimates that the distance from his deck to the rear cable rail of the ship is about 20 meters out and up. It's clear he won't have many chances to grapple it. Realistically, though, it's the only place he'll be able to land any sort of hook. The small boat rolls and pitches fiercely, threatening to smash itself to kindling against the steel ribs of its outsized cousin. For a moment, Answer approaches fear. Are you out of your mind? You're never going to make that throw? The controller snaps in. Not now. I appreciate your concern, big boy, but not now. The overriding voice of certainty allows no room for even the idlest consideration of failure. Old. This momentary exchange between the cautious mind and the iron will is well rehearsed, but consistently brief conversation, one that aspects of answer have been party to countless times, and it never seems to end any other way. He's ready. The ship is right, heading south towards familiar territory and safety. Wallowing in the Japanese current waiting for his ride, Answer has not lain idle. He drags three lead weights, each weighing a kilo or more, onto the deck, and lays them next to the wheel. Each sinker is bowline knotted to a 50-meter rope coiled on the deck. Every meter a fist-sized knot has been laid into the line. Standing spread-legged, bracing against the violent sway of the deck, he swings the weighted end lariat like in a broadening circle until he has the momentum to heave it up and over the stern of the tanker. With an enormous grunt, Answer lets fly. The line snicks out of the coil upward into darkness. After a few moments, he does not feel the line fall back. He begins drawing the rope toward himself. Several seconds pass before the distant hook releases and falls into the whitewater. He drops that set and snatches the lead end of another. No attachment to failure. There's another. Pinching his eyes shut, he envisions a red stub sticking into the air somewhere above. Committing all his effort to the second throw, he sends it out. This one sets, hooking itself up and over the bow rail, hopefully onto something solid. Answer feels the tug of the line just as the small boat lifts and slams into the side of the massive hull towering above. Planks squeal. Answer dances as they shudder and sunder underfoot. Nothing more now but to move. To avoid being crushed between the larger ship and his own craft, Answer cuts the engine. The boat immediately begins falling astern of the tanker, and he sprints forward along the slick deck, rope in hand, leaping into the cardiac arrest of the freezing ocean. Five seconds elapse before the line snaps tight, shoulders severing tight against its provisional anchor point in the darkness somewhere above. Answer is immediately dragged through and under the water, drowning by increments. He hauls down with a frenzy, finding each succeeding knot by feel, and heaving himself forward and upward. Each pull takes up half a meter of slack. Answer's forearms are pumped by the time his full-out effort drags him above the waterline. Too gassed to defend himself, he hangs momentarily, log-rolling along the side of the ship. His focus shoots back into place 
and he extends his legs in the stance of an experienced repeller walking on a cliff wall. Five seconds of deep breath before he redoubles his efforts and yards his body up to the safety of the distant deck. All told, the climb costs him three and a half endless minutes. With the last bit of fire he can summon, he hucks his torso and limp legs over the steel railing and flops onto the freezing deck, a heaving sack of exhaustion. Now, it is a pitched battle between consciousness and unconsciousness. Hesitation invites the absolute rigor mortis of exposure. He must get into the ship's belly to the warmth of the engine room. Slipping between delirium, near-death confusion, unable to gain his feet or balance, he rolls toward the closest hatch. An immense, uncontrollable impulse comes over him. As his body flops across the brutal studded deck, his mouth opens, and an inhuman sound throws itself from his throat into the frigid, stiffening winds that snatch it into forever. His body is electrified by a surge of alien energy that invades every cell of exhausted tissue. Answer is possessed by a force that seizes limbs, clutches his spine, and practically flings his body toward the safety of the ship's innards. Dream time. Sleep is not normally a restful state for coordinator. It rarely provides a respite from the concerns of waking life. For this woman, sleep, even reinforced by drugs, is customarily occupied by the details of work. So it is noticeable, even to her resting mind, when this routine is subverted by a review of her own childhood, which was, she can attest, wholly unexceptional in its ordinariness. Suburban home, nuclear family, comfortable income, high-end education, a statistically reasonable number of friends, full curricula. Dreams from this period defy such wholesome categorization. They came like a hurricane, recurred often, and terrified with every visit. Uncertain about the normalcy of such things, the girl had tested the waters with her friends on the subject. But it quickly became clear that either none of them shared her terrors, or if they did, they were not anxious to own up to it. So she stopped talking about her dreams. Once the otherness of her experience was established, secrecy seemed a reasonable tactic to adopt. Nobody would know what happened inside her head, waking or sleeping, unless she told them, and she knew how to lie. This simple realization opened in her consciousness a protected space that she would later fill to capacity with hidden items of all kinds. Secrecy was the country of invisible power, an unspoken reserve of infinite volume to be inhabited by wishes, fantasies, identities, all things private, all things vulnerable. Over time, this ability, the capacity to segregate reality into discrete edited units and file them in this inviolable space, would become a hugely advantageous and very professional asset. Of the dreams that she could not share, of those that terrified her, repeatedly molesting her sleep like malicious robbers compelled to return to the scene of a favorite crime, there was one in particular that shook her the worst. It began as she followed her parents into a department store. She lagged behind as they passed down aisles littered with consumer objects. Turning a corner, they saw, just there at the end of the cosmetics aisle, an escalator, the type of moving staircase ordinary in stores once upon a time before brick and mortar became uneconomical. Her parents walked toward the machine, its offset steel treads emerging one at a time from an unseen mechanical grotto, silently producing a stare every second or so. She felt drawn to the magic and technology of it. They would step aboard, ascending miraculously, until always, just near the top, and at precisely the same moment in the dream, Coordinator would look down and notice a dangling shoelace. She would look up, open her mouth, and call for her parents' attention. They stood, backs turned, 
two or three steps above, but no matter how much effort she gave, no words emerged. Parents, unaware, continued on, stepping off at the top before moving out of sight. Her pulse racing, she watched helplessly as the shoelace was seized by the thin metal teeth of the stairs. Her efforts to lift her foot slipped the shoe off before it began to be pulled into the mechanical underworld by the rolling floor, failed every time. She could hear desperate shouts and screams in her head, but her body produced no sound. Gruesomely, the rest spooled out in a Mobius coil of terror. First a foot was drawn in, crushed, splintering. The sound was excruciating. This was followed by the ankle and the shin. By this point, she was on her belly, facing down the staircase, cheek pressed against the steel treads, the ridges, her nose saturated with the stench of oil, cleaning fluid, and an iron-bitter scent of her own blood, heartbreaking with the lack of humanity in it all. Inevitably, the other foot and leg would be drawn under, sucked into the crushing, unknowably vicious space below those stairs. There was never pain that reached into the dream. There was apparently sufficient room in that surreal volume of her mind, only for an all-consuming, pressurizing terror. As an adolescent, she imagined this sensation as akin to being held at the bottom of a very deep pool by an irresistible force. Consumption by stairs would progress until the sensation of going under reached her hips. At that moment, she would start awake, gasping for air, and intimately aware that she was sitting in the dampness of her own urine. In some ways, this was the worst of it, to awaken sitting bolt upright, but welded immobile to a wet sheet. Rabidly conscious and inexplicably paralyzed, she would sit there in the dark, unable to escape from the saddle of the terrible dream that even in wakefulness adamantly refused to surrender its dominion over her body. The cabin crew glides efficiently through, waking passengers slowly in time to freshen up for the landing in Macau. Coordinator rouses herself, considers for the thousandth time the metaphor of her nightmare, and at the moment, it seems especially apt. She is in a deep pool indeed, where something of unknown dimension is interested in making sure she is pushed to the bottom and stays there. But she's almost back to house, and whoever or whatever it is putting a crushing hand on her chest is not the only one with resources. No cloud without a silver lining, her mother used to say. Yeah, right, Mom, coordinator grimaces as she clicks her harness. And no silver lining without that cloud. Saturday, 10.48, GMT-9. Bilgewater shares one essential quality with chocolate. It latches onto every passing scent, embedding itself in each atom. Answer sits cross-legged atop a bed crafted from pilfered packing materials. His mind awakens to the rancor of contending smells, abstractly noting the similarity between ballast and dessert, as consciousness re-aims itself, focusing anew on the immediate demands of life as a stowaway. He surveys his surroundings, and reviews what happened. The last 24 hours have been dedicated to familiarizing himself with the ship, gathering the necessities for surviving a four- or five-day voyage, and getting as much sleep and meditation as he can tolerate. Apart from eating and exercise, all that remains is to keep his presence below decks a secret. Answer stretches facial muscles into a lion mask pose, and is reminded of the contact with Jaguar. Lying on the deck that first night, stricken by the paralyzing cold and muscular exhaustion, he knows that he howled the cat's name out of desperation, and he had been visited, more like possessed, by a power and presence so surpassing that he had literally been carried back to life. Transformation is neither explicable nor always survivable. A shimmering filter falls over the eyes and sets the mind's color register on a wavelength not unlike what one sees looking through infrared. 
Things reveal themselves in a singular collision of distilled color and movement. The still bits, greens and grays, are the inanimate elements of life. The red spectrum, in a profusion of vibrancy, illuminates the world of the living, heat-radiating cells. During this encounter with the beast spirit, Anser had found his own body loping cat-like at high speed toward a closed hatch on the ship's rear deck. His lungs had expanded in an alarming way, his body vibrating with a power so fluid it felt wet. A fringe of odor, sweat, oil, diesel emitted as light from around the portal. His hands, which moments earlier were stiffening into the frigid rigor of exposure, landed like claws on the circular hatch wheel, spinning it with the ease of a child releasing a top. Slipping inside, a cloying, sudden warmth saturated his bones and muscles and sinew tormented by exposure. Answer's head pivoted, surveying the dank space around him. Sounds echoed up from the belly of the ship. He raised his head, a super-sensitive nose drinking in the facts. What came was more than smell, something akin to a wash of senses dripping together to form a single full impression, the acrid scent of lubricant alongside images of men laboring. These creatures appeared as clouds of red, hovering over and near each other, greener, more substantial shapes around them. One of these forms was at the bottom rung of the next set of steps. It moved upwards toward them. In a single fluid motion, the beast leapt back to the landing in front of the hatch above and turned to face the passageway below. Answer was certain of what would happen to the man if he was discovered. It almost leaned toward that premise of conflict. That's how it went for a period that Answer cannot now dissect into pieces understandable as time. They, or he, seemed to be on a hunt of sorts, but in reverse, an illustration of the power of the cat to avoid detection and resist the temptation to wreak havoc on the unsuspecting. It was simultaneously a demonstration of cleverness and a certainty and clarity of purpose. The naked threat of the predator went unnoticed by those in the engine room. Vulnerable men, readily touched, easily vanquished, but luckily left unharmed and ignorant of their peril. That was true virtue, the restraint. Three decks down, Answer had somehow torn his way into the back of a cotton bale, ripping with a type of feral satisfaction at the cellulose mass, until abruptly there was no energy left. Nothing of the cat of that power remained. Just enough Answer consciousness, a coal of his will, lingered for the man to down half his water, crawl into the makeshift burrow, and collapse into his sleep, deep as the rumors of death. Sunday, 11.28, GMT plus 8. The jump cab ride in from Bahia Praia da Canji takes just minutes and leaves Coordinator a couple of blocks from Government House, the official home of CASM, the Committee Handling Assets and Social Movements. This is the legitimate political wing of the collective movement, and almost universally shortened by those in the know, to just house. The mood of Macau has definitely changed since the days of high-stakes gambling and triad wars. Not that the tongs are gone, just more carefully regulated now. China's shadow remains the spectra behind all the change, but now that the world's largest VTOL port and conference facility are finished, Macau has become a genuine world trade destination. It had moved past 30 years of four-meter seawall construction, even New York could only afford to protect Manhattan, and re-centralization of infrastructure to become a genuine post-change adaptation-era melting pot of radicals, tourists, and politicians. Not that the gambling ever went away. It's just been augmented. The turning point was arguably the new collectivist Congress that spawned the international movement eight years back, even though many of the participants in that early stage were from the former Eastern Euros, redistributing wealth by any means necessary, 
The phrase still makes coordinators smile. Mainline thinking was that it was best to know where crime was centered than to wonder. So, while communism still held some shrinking sway over the two billion-plus Chinese, the government looked to new business as a means of enlarging its coffers. Who did the business, as was consistent with Macau's history, was not really of concern, as long as they paid the bills. As coordinator walks up to the entrance, a gaggle of Buddhist monks flow down the steps, probably just out from a pitch to the higher-ups on some community project. There are so many needs these days in Indochina, with the sea level two meters higher than 30 years ago. Most humans didn't know until now that the oceans weren't the same level around the globe. The sheer spread of the change used to stir hot debate, but it turned out that the facts were a lot less debatable and a shit-ton nastier than predicted. Not a surprise, really. Everybody invested in the old money machine held on until something forced them to let it go. Climate change? Nah. More like climate revolution. She nods slightly in their direction as she passes the Saffron crew, then slides into a gap in a revolving door fronting the lobby. As she is swept toward the building's innards, she feels the positive pressure change that attends a cell-by-cell in-house passive anti-biohazard screen and isolate system. Once inside the main foyer, she walks up to the unassuming security desk and passes an ID chip to the guard. He slips it past a reader, startles a little bit at the readout, half standing up out of his chair. Uh, welcome back, uh, ma'am. Were we expecting you? Coordinator gestures for him to sit down. No worries, I'm not expected, but I imagine the secretary may want to see me. She uses her most corporate tone. I'd appreciate it if you'd set me up with a workspace and ask his assistant to get me a meeting as soon as possible. The guard nods. Please have a seat. I'm not sure the secretary is in just now, but I'll do what I can. Less than five minutes pass before a smartly dressed young man strides up to coordinator and produces a broad smile. It's a genuine pleasure to meet you, station's coordinator. You must be Avi, coordinator replies, standing and taking his outstretched hand in hers. Yes, coordinator, I am pleased you know of me. The secretary speaks very highly of you. Does he now? Well, that's probably because I know where the bodies are buried. Something like that, I'm sure. Avi nods politely. He opens a slim folder and examines it intently. He has an opening at 1615, if that works. Until then, I've prepared a data suite for you. It seems likely you'll want to do some research, so I've configured it for full access to house data, all security fights open. Coordinator nods her head appreciatively. I suppose your dossier also knows what I'd like to eat. I confess. Avi bows slightly and stretches his arms wide in mock defeat. There is a steamed Hannibon machine in the nook gallery of the suite you will be using. You are a marvel, coordinator concedes as she picks up her small case. Where are we then? Her host turns and walks smoothly past the security desk and into the heart of the building. Once beyond the modernist colonial facade of the lobby, the place takes on a mustier feel. In truth, it always seemed to coordinator that it had the character of an under-maintained library, with its poorly lit hallways that stretched off toward a seemingly infinite series of doorways and intersections. Or maybe, she considered as she followed Avi, more like a monastery. Her guide stops at an unmarked door and fishes a keycard from his jacket. Here we are. Do I understand correctly that you have no audio implants? Still as true as it ever was. He passes his key through the reader and reaches into a pocket, pulling out a pair of perfectly preserved earbuds. I'm afraid you'll need these, then. Audio above 5 dB is prohibited in house data studios. Too easy to snoop. Understood, coordinator says, accepting the headphones. A pair of original iPhone buds? These are quite the antiquity, no? Avi smiles openly, as with one arm he swings the door aside to let her through. Indeed they are. We liberated them from the technology museum wing. Would you mind just one personal question? He asks, his head tilting ever so slightly to one side. That would depend on how personal, she says over her shoulder while depositing her things on a sumptuous data console. I am curious, he almost whispers. 
why someone so notoriously interested in technology has not adopted audio or phone implants. They're so efficient for a person with your well-known appetite for information. Well, I was just a bit surprised to see that you don't use them. Coordinator regards the young man, thinking, your people have accepted what I think is a dangerous augmentation. Back in the days of Google and Facebook, Twitter, and all that, they had simply taken this book that technology of whatever type must be good. It was an illusion, just the trap of shiny stuff humans always fall for. Once there was nearly complete connectivity, once nothing was worth anything, beginning with privacy, once data had been raised to a value it never deserved, the business state just stepped over the scrap heap remnants of government and toothless regulation and, well, what a total fucking fraud all that turned out to be. Everybody back in the day worrying about the security state. They'd all been looking in the wrong direction. Biz turned out to be the real skank. Always is. But she kept that rant to herself. It has to stop at the body, Avi, she says, in lieu of off-gassing her real opinions. Her voice is low, the cadence almost dreamy. In my line of work, any piece of technology you've got can be found by somebody. If I'm using something I can't remove, I'm too easy to mark. I see, he says. Thank you for indulging me. My pleasure. By the way, Avi, I appreciate your help. See you at 1615. Avi nods and passes through the door, letting it close softly behind him and leaving Coordinator alone with her thoughts. be back next week with chapter 6 of criminal magic please join us and if you like what you hear leave a review and tell your friends about this podcast <laughs>